Well, we are continuing our summer series. We are in the Apostles' Creed. And uh, the Creed is a distillation of some of the key beliefs of Christianity, kind of like in a pocket-sized form. It's uh, a widely accepted creed by various branches of Christianity, different denominations. If you've been to a lot of different churches, you know. Some churches will actually uh, recite the Apostles' Creed as part of their liturgy or maybe church services. And basically... The Apostles' Creed is this short answer to the question, well, what is it that you Christians believe anyway? It's kind of a short list there. And uh, I joked with the first service this morning, I say that we have a whopping 30-ish minutes or so to cover the descent, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. 30 minutes. If you're familiar with those topics, you know this is no small task. I thought, well, why not just give me five more minutes I'll cover that whole Calvinism versus Arminianism thing, talk about the problem of evil, resolve that, and even draw you a map to where I think the ark is currently located. Might be closer than you think, right? I'll just say delta. That's all I'm saying. It's a a joke, okay. Uh, I joke a little bit here, but uh, our time's limited, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend about half of our time on this first question of the descent. And really, it's, it's a question because... It's the question, did Jesus descend into hell or did he descend into the grave? Uh, The second half we're going to spend on the resurrection because that's the capstone of our faith, really. And the third topic, the ascension, I'm only going to mention in a sentence or two. I think that's how we're going to get the most bang for our buck here in our limited time here. So let's start up by just looking at the creed. I don't think it's in your bulletin this week, but we do have it on the screen for you here. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. Uh, We've been working through it portion by portion, and today we are on the yellow portion there. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. And right off the bat, you notice that that first clause there, he descended to the dead, is underlined, okay? Some of you know where I'm going with this. The reason why we underlined it is this is actually some alternative wording uh, that's been chosen here. If you've been a a part of a church that recites the Apostles' Creed regularly, uh, you might have heard it said a different way. It might be listed as he descended to the grave or he descended to hell. And uh, not every church uses the creed the same way. Some will list he descended to the dead or the grave. Some will say he descended to to hell. And still others, I remember one going to as a kid, uh, it had both. It had one, I can't remember which one in the main text, and it had like a little asterisk with a footnote and the other one with no explanation. So as a kid, I was like, what's going on here? Um, but maybe you've noticed or experienced the same thing. And maybe you've even wondered, well, did Jesus really go to hell or not? I mean, the creed already said right above there that he was crucified, dead, and buried. So why see that he was buried again, a second time when you just said it? So does that mean he descended to hell? And if he descended to hell, notice that that comes right before these words, on the third day he rose again. So does that mean that Jesus was in hell for three days? If so, where is the scripture to support all this? Well, my friends, those are some of the fun questions we get to untangle as the first of three topics we're supposed to cover today. Really two, because I'm going to skip the ascension. I'm going to put the question to us this way. Can we confidently say that Jesus descended into hell, like we would confidently state the other parts of the Apostles' Creed. 
Now, uh, since we're dealing with a tricky issue and we are limited in time, I'm going to heavily lean on the scholarship of someone who has wrestled with this question before. He's written a clear and excellent answer to it. And I'm going to refer you to your bulletin insert notes there. I've given you some lengthy notes today. And um, basically, these notes are from a book called 40 Questions About Heaven and Hell by a scholar named Alan Gomes. I've actually had the pleasure of uh, studying under Alan Gomes when I was back in seminary for a few different classes. His specialties are church history and, of all things, Latin, both of which are relevant uh, for this issue of the creed because it was written originally in Latin. And uh, I would say this. uh, This is my shameless promotion for this book. If you're looking for a good Christian book, buy this book. No joke. If I had to reduce my current Christian library to just 10 books, this one would make the cut. Uh, He treats scripture excellently. It's almost a case in how to do theology because he writes so clearly and so well. So can't promote it higher. Besides, you might want to know what happens to pets. Do do we have pets in heaven? It's two chapters on that. So uh, shamelessly promote that book here. Uh, But let's deal with our question here. Can we confidently say Jesus descended into hell? Here's a spoiler. Our short answer is going to be no that we can't confidently assert that, uh, at least not with a whole ton of confidence. And so it's better to opt for this alternative language, he descended to the dead. And uh, I'm going to you know, show you from your notes here, there's three reasons why I don't think we can say with a high degree of confidence uh, that Jesus descended into hell, and we're going to just touch on each one quickly here. Uh, but first of all, lest you think that I am a heretic and that you've mistakenly wandered into some progressive Christian church, Uh, Let me just give you a quote by Alan Gomes up front here. This is in your bulletin. It's very helpful to keep in mind. He says, The authority of a creed, any creed, is relative, not absolute. A creed is only as good as the scriptural basis upon which it rests. So we said this morning, the Apostles' Creed, uh, it's like this pocket-sized distillation of the Christian faith, true enough. It's respected by many. It's been around for some time. And it's valuable in a lot of ways, but it's important to keep in mind that it is not Scripture itself. Scripture is the higher authority here, and we derive the creed from Scripture. So when there's this debated clause, he descended into hell, that pops up, uh, and some Christians accept it, some Christians reject it. Other churches will put both of them and one of them in a footnote. We need to dig a little bit deeper to see what's going on here. Uh, So we're going to look at, well, where did this clause, he descended into hell, come from? What does it mean? And most importantly, the million-dollar question is, does Scripture clearly teach it? Um, Now, there's three main reasons I think that we can't say with a whole lot of confidence that Jesus descended into hell. These are on your handout there if you want to follow along. I'm just going to go through uh, a lot of things on your handout here. So the first reason we can't confidently state it is because the textual background for this particular clause, he descended into hell, is weak. Um, Reading from your notes here, it says, the clause, he descended into hell, does not appear in the earliest versions of the creed that popped up in the mid-second century. So it's not in what we would call the original version or versions. The first time it actually appears is the mid-fourth century, so uh, two centuries later. And we can almost just throw on the brakes right there. If the question we're really looking for is, well, was the apostolic teaching that made its way into the Apostles' Creed 
clearly taught from the beginning? The answer is going to be no. We don't even have evidence of it until the fourth century. Uh, there's no history of it in connection with the creed before then, and that's glaring. But uh, back to the handout, this particular clause, he descended into hell. It only appeared in one of the three significant versions that were kind of going around at the time in the fourth century. So you have kind of version A, version B, and then this third one. And it's uh, the, the language of he descended into hell is not in the first two. It's only in this third one. And interestingly... Uh, the version that it appeared in didn't have the died and buried language of the first two. So you have essentially, he was, he, was, he was crucified, dead and buried, crucified, dead and buried. No mention of it at all, but he descended to hell. And so we have a commentator named Rufinus. This is not a name that has withstood the test of time. I don't know any Rufinuses uh, around here. Uh, but he basically makes a comment on this, and he says, well, this phrase, uh, this clause, he descended to hell, is equivalent in meaning to the phrase he was buried. It doesn't have any reference to the death or burial of Jesus, so that's what they meant by that, kind of a poetic way of saying it. And uh, this clause, again, he descended into hell, it disappears from most of the versions of the creed for the next 300 years, reemerges again in the 7th century, and it's about the uh, mid-8th century here when the language of the creed becomes more standardized across the church. Circulating uh, language included both the dead and buried of A and B, and they said, well, we're going to put in the descended in hell as well. So that's why you have both. And the takeaway here just for us today is that this particular clause, he descended into hell, has questionable textual history. It came late to the party, if I can put it that way. And it wasn't consistently included in all the formulations until about the mid-8th century. So that background should give us a little bit of pause before putting it as part of our ABCs of the Christian faith. Well, let's just say, uh, for the sake of argument, that you are happy enough to include this clause, he descended into hell, into the creed. I mean, it has been there for 1,200 years. That's pretty good, right? Well, there's a second problem, and this is a pretty quick one here. There's disagreement about what the clause even means. Even for those who want to include it, when they're pressed to say, well, what does that mean? They would give different answers. So I give you four different historical kind of answers that have come out to that. Uh, one would agree with like Rufinus back in the fourth century. It just means that he was truly buried in the grave. We wouldn't disagree with that. Um, another uh, interpretation is that Christ suffered the pains of hell on the cross. Again, we wouldn't disagree necessarily with that concept. I mean, it's clear that Jesus suffered more than just physically on the cross. Uh, it's more that metaphorical view there. But still others would say, well, it means that Christ liberated Old Testament believers from Hades, or he went to proclaim his triumph over the wicked in Hades, or maybe some combo of those last two. But again, uh, we don't need to get a final answer on this. We just need to see that there hasn't been consensus about what this phrase means. So we might ask ourselves, what's the point of saying this portion of a creed is supposed to be our basic Christian uh, beliefs when we don't even agree on what the, the words mean? Um, beyond the second issue, there is a third reason we can't confidently assert that Jesus went into hell. And this is going to be our main reason here. It's because the Bible passages are inconclusive. Now, if you look at your hand up there, um, and if you didn't get a handout, boy, didn't you miss out today? This is the day you needed your handout, right? 
Uh, I listed three passages that are often corralled uh, to support the idea that Jesus descended into hell. Uh, Alan Gomes in his book actually lists the fourth one. I didn't even include it. I think it's a uh, uh, pretty weak reference, not even worth mentioning. And I actually think that first one from Acts is not very strong as well. Uh, and we're not going to go through the other two or even all of those. But I do want us to look at one of them because um, we're going to look at the first Peter chapter 3 reference. Because I think this is your best bet. If you're looking in scripture for biblical support, for the idea that Jesus descended into hell. This is probably your best shot at it, so I want you to see what's there. So if you've got your Bibles with you, just please open to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. And I'll just say to encourage you up front, we're not going to exegete this fully. We're just going to look at it to see what's in front of us here. Okay, this is what Peter says in chapter 3 of 1 Peter Uh, Starting in verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in heaven, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Okay, if your head is spinning uh, over understanding that verse, you are not alone. Uh, This is a very cryptic passage in Scripture. Uh, It's one of the most hotly debated ones as to what it even means. And if you think the meaning is just as clear as day, you might want to slow down a little bit, uh, because again, historically, Martin Luther uh, was one of the first who kind of tried to take this on, and he was no dummy uh, when it came to the biblical languages, exegesis, he knew his stuff. And he basically throws up his hands and says, I have no idea what Peter is getting at here. And he's not alone. Uh, Part of the problem in using this particular passage to to support the idea that there's this descent into hell is that this passage doesn't mention a descent whatsoever, just a going. And it doesn't mention hell either. Okay, so no descent, no hell. Um, now, if this were the Old Testament, we could point to the language and say there's this one common Hebrew word used for the grave or hell. In the New Testament in Greek, there's actually three different words that are used. All pre- well, two of them are common, one's less common. This word prison is none of those. So, descent into hell, no descent, no hell. And if you're like, well, yeah, but hey, Adam, wait a second. Prison obviously has to refer to hell. I mean, where else are you going to put these disobedient spirits? Uh, The response is that there's actually a reference to imprisoned spirits during the time of Noah in a book outside the Bible, an apocryphal book known as First Enoch. Sometimes it's called the Book of Enoch. So it's not clear that this prison is necessarily hell if that book is being referred to. But scholars don't even agree if this reference is to that other book. Um, Long and short here, there's three main competing theories about how to make sense of this passage, and uh, I'm not going to subject us all to to go through each of those. Uh, But my point is this, the passage just isn't clear enough for us to assert with a high level of confidence that Jesus went to hell. Does it allude to a time he went to hell? Well, maybe, uh, but there are some other alternate explanations, so we might want to hold our conclusions a little loosely rather than state them with the same level of confidence that we say the other parts of the Apostles' Creed. And so, um, 
uh, you know, I'll just say this in passing too, since we're looking at scripture, you could even look at a few other Bible passages that seem to contradict the idea that Jesus spent his time between his death and resurrection uh, in hell uh, right after he dies there. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 23, uh, starting in verse 42, it's a pretty familiar story you guys will recognize. Jesus is on the cross, he's dying. There's two thieves, one on either side of him. One of the thieves kind of comes around and realizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, hey, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say in response? He says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me, where? In hell? In prison with the disobedient spirits from, the, from Noah's time will I make a proclamation to them? No, he says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then about two verses later, he speaks to God the Father and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's kind of hard to reconcile those verses, paradise, into the Father's hands, my spirit in your hands, with this idea that Jesus spent that time immediately after his death uh, in hell. Uh, so summing up, just looking at your notes there, uh, two quotes. The first one's from Alan Gomes. Uh, he's very matter-of-fact. He just says, it's best to reject the descent into hell clause in the Apostles' Creed. Okay, he just shoots straight like that. Uh, also, another scholar, Randall Otto, says it a little bit more flowery. Uh, he says, to include such a mysterious article in the Creed, which is supposed to be a summary of the basic and vital tenets of the faith, seems very unwise. And I like that second one here, because again, the Apostles' Creed is supposed to be the simple distillation of what we believe. If the teaching that Jesus went to hell uh, in that uh, First Peter reference is a reference to that, it's pretty obscure, and it wasn't included uh, from the beginning here. And that's why here at Bethel we've opted for the uh, non-controversial wording that Jesus descended to the dead. This is, uh, in other words, Jesus really died, and this is what Pastor Eric talked about last week. So whew, I can see the, the eyes glazing over. Okay, we want a smile or two out there. Believe it or not, this is actually the short answer to a very, very tricky question. It's probably more information than 99% of you wanted. I know there's that 1% out there, though, that you like this stuff. I will say this. Uh, if this is a bee in your bonnet and you want to talk more, particularly about the question if Jesus descended to the hell, you want to look at the other passages, talk about what they meant, I am more than happy to sit down with you over coffee. And uh, we'll go through this. I don't mind going down the rabbit trails, but I just know that not everyone's struggling with this issue, but maybe you are and you want to talk more. I'm happy to talk more. So uh, let's turn the page literally here, uh, change gears and talk about the resurrection. Okay, this is the part of the Apostles' Creed. On the third day, he rose again. Okay, this is the good stuff. And there's a lot of angles that we could approach this from. I'm just going to mention three things uh, that I thought are important for us to realize about the resurrection today. Uh, first one, super simple. The resurrection is clearly taught in Scripture. I mean, amen, woo! I mean, after... The whole question, the descent into hell here, I'm happy to see this. Night and day difference between the lack of scriptural evidence for this uh, theory or belief in the descent of hell and the overflowing abundance of scriptures that talk about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, there's so many. I'm just going to choose a few. You don't have to turn here uh, as I read them. Just listen. They're familiar passages. Uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 1. This is a resurrection it says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. 
They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the man said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. I just think of Easter every time we say that. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Okay? Different passage, a lot shorter one from the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20. This is after Jesus has been crucified. He appears to his disciples. John 20, 19 says, On the evening of the first day of that week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for, the fears of, for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Okay, I'll just give you one more. It's from 1 Corinthians 15, um, verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Notice there's no mention of the descent into hell. According to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, this is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And there are just tons and tons of other verses. I could spend more time here. I won't do that to us all. It's kind of warm. Uh, but my point here is this is uh, the cornerstone of our faith, really. It's so important that there's tons and tons of scripture about it here. Uh, second thing I want to say about the resurrection here, just moving on. The resurrection validates our faith, okay? You go to the restaurant, you have to validate your parking. It makes it real. It validates it. This is another way of saying, basically, that all those things that Jesus said, all the things that Jesus promised are rock solid because they have God's the Father's seal of approval on him by raising him from the dead. Uh, I will look at some scriptures. We're going to support this with scripture, but I, just, I think it's easiest to consider this idea of validation of our faith if we think about the opposite. What if the opposite were true? What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I mean, you can imagine there's two friends talking, right? The first friend goes, hey, uh, I want to tell you about this amazing religious teacher that I heard about. Second friend goes, okay, tell me, I'm all ears. First friend goes, well, he said so many cool things. He says, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. No one can come to God the Father except through me. And he said he has the authority to forgive sins. And he says that we can have eternal life if we believe in him. Isn't that cool? Well, yeah. Well, what happened to him? Oh, he died. Oh, yeah. Was he sick or something? Oh, no. Actually, he got executed by the government. Oh, and no, that's it. Uh, he's dead now. But uh, isn't that great? Don't you want to believe in him too? And then there's this awkward silence and maybe the other friend goes, well, how do you know all of those things he said were true in the conversation? I think that's a fair question. How do you know all of this stuff is true? Here's the thing. 
The resurrection is how we know all these words and promises of Jesus are true. And scripture says the same thing in a few different places. I'll read through a few quickly. You don't need to turn each one, but you can do that if you want or just listen. First one's going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, he says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Uh, the long and short of that one is, is our belief in a future resurrection depends upon the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, 1 Peter 1.3, uh, Ethan and I did not conspire to share that, but that was one of the verses we, we read at the start of the service here. 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 3 says, Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, we have this living hope, this real reason to hope and have expectation for our future uh, because of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, last one we'll look at here, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a little bit later in the chapter, it's verse 14. Paul uh, says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Let the gravity of that hit you. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. We, of all people, are most to be pitied. Summing that one up, what is based on the resurrection of Jesus? The witness of Paul and the other New Testament writers. The future resurrection of the dead. The forgiveness of sins. The eternal fate of those who've already died. And the entire Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus is central because so much rides upon it. So can we trust the words and promises of this Jesus guy? Yes, we can, because the resurrection validates our faith. That should give us great confidence and peace as we walk out our faith in, in troubling world and troubling times. I mean, you might have relational stuff going on or financial or health or whatever, but when you say, you know what, Jesus has risen from the dead, in the end, it's all going to be okay. That's a great comfort to us. The money's in the bank, so to speak. The promise is sure because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I have just uh, one last thing to mention about the resurrection, but I want to call out what might be the elephant in the room for some of you here. And that elephant in the room is a particular thought that might sound something like this. Adam, you just said that the resurrection of Jesus validates our faith. That basically all of Christianity stands or falls on this one thing. But how helpful is that validation to me right now, 2023, more than 2,000 years after it happened? I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I've never had a personal appearance of Jesus. How can I be sure? 
I mean, don't we have to accept the resurrection of Jesus by blind faith? And if we have to accept the resurrection of Jesus by blind faith, how can we be sure that it actually happened? I mean, isn't this just like blind faith upon blind faith upon blind faith? I'll say if that is you and those are your thoughts, I'm glad you're here. Uh, Because our last point in talking about the resurrection today is this. The resurrection is supported by strong evidence. And I will get to the evidence in a second here, but I do want to just share uh, a quick little story with you about this one. Uh, I was not raised as a Christian in a Christian home at all. I was, as I say, a party and frat boy in college. And uh, when I began to investigate Christianity... And uh, for me, the resurrection uh, was not kind of the, my key issue at the time. I was more interested in meaning, purpose, morality. That's kind of what sent me on a spiritual quest to find answers. And when I came to believe in Christianity, did I believe in the resurrection? Yeah, I did. But that wasn't really the pressing point on me at the time. I just understood it as part of the whole. And I said, yeah, well, that makes sense too. So I went on my Christian life. Uh, I did missions overseas. Eventually, I found my way back to the U.S. I was back in seminary about 10 years later. And I was sitting in a certain class in seminary. And it was an apologetics class. If you don't know what apologetics is, it's basically defending the Christian faith, right? And there was a young TA there. He was probably about the same age as me, maybe a year or two older. His name is John Kwok. He's teaching philosophy somewhere now. And... um, he began teaching on this topic that I'm about to hit you with, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And in this class, my mind was absolutely blown. I had been a Christian for about 10 years at this point. And when we started going through the evidence point by point and reading through the secondary sources outside of the Bible, I just remember stopping. uh, Like, I almost felt like, I mean, I wasn't out of body, but I almost felt like I was just outside myself, like looking at the rest of the class going, are you guys hearing all this? Why didn't any of you tell me this 10 years ago, you know, or five years ago, or one year ago? Why did I have to wait 10 years to hear about evidence for the resurrection? I thought you Christians had been holding out on me. I was, I was a Christian, but I still felt like a newbie after 10 years, right? Why didn't anyone tell me this stuff? Because I realized as we went through it that belief in the resurrection is not a matter of blind faith. There is strong evidence that supports it. And it's evidence that doesn't depend on you believing in the Bible as the inspired, inerrant word of God. You can just take it as an ancient historical document. So I'm going to give you the short version of the facts we covered in class just to whet your appetite. It's uh, sometimes referred to as the minimal facts approach, uh, meaning that what are the minimal facts that we need to establish to show that Jesus rose from the dead? It's, it was developed by Gary Habermas. His name is in the uh, additional resources I give you there. Uh, other people have adapted it. They've switched it up with different, you know, lists of facts, which are all good. And uh, we will not have time to go through all the secondary documents and all the sub-arguments that support each point. But I've listed some resources there for you to check out because you need to check this out if you're not already familiar with it. What is this strong evidence you're saying? Quit talking. Just give me the evidence here, right? Well, this is what you do. You present four universally accepted facts about Christianity, and then you ask someone to explain how these four things are true. And when I say universally accepted, I do not mean universally accepted by some random YouTube influencer named Jersey E-Boy 420, who has a lot of opinions and a loud mouth, but not any expertise. 
I'm using what Gary Habermas uses as his criteria, universally accepted facts by scholars who have terminal degrees, meaning PhDs, in historic Christianity, the historic Jesus, who do research and writing about this topic as a career. And even though many of these folks, probably most of them, wouldn't consider themselves Christians in any sense, they don't believe Christianity is true, they would agree with these four facts. So um, let's look at what they are. I put them in your, your bulletin there. I'll put them up on the screen here. Four facts about the resurrection. Again, I won't have time to go through the support for each one, but the resources that are there to get you started. First one, Jesus died on the cross. In other words, he was a real historical guy, no joke, uh, who lived in the Middle East about 2,000 years ago, and he died by crucifixion. And we don't even have to just look at the Bible for this. We have other historians who've written about this, Jewish, Roman, and other sources outside of that as well. Not controversial at all to people who spend their time in this. Number two, the tomb was empty. Again, how would you start a world religion based on resurrection if the dead body is still there? Number three, the disciples believed that they had seen Jesus alive after his death. Again, these are you know, liberal scholars that Habermas collects the data from. They don't believe Christianity necessarily, but they believe that the first disciples said, we've encountered him alive. And many of them were willing to go to their deaths for their faith. Last point here, Paul and James were skeptics turned martyrs. Okay, If you don't know James, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And both he and the apostle Paul started off not just skeptical, but really Paul was hostile. He was persecuting Christians and both claimed to have encountered the risen Jesus, and they converted despite their initial hostility. So these are the four basic facts. Again, if you see others who use the, the mental facts method, they might add some other ones in there as well. And then you just say, well, how do you explain these four things? And let's say that you're hostile to Christianity. You say, okay, I get, this is, listen, this is like shooting fish in a barrel, man. Easy enough. I got an explanation. The disciples stole the body. They faked it. So it just looked like a resurrection. Okay? Well, that covers number one. That covers number two. But what about number three and number four? Why would monotheistic Jews commit blasphemy and be willing to die for a lie when they had nothing to gain for it? It's not like they were making bank off of this. They were persecuted. They were hated. They were martyred for this. And what about fact number four? Why would that be convincing to either Paul or James, the testimony of these other guys? Okay, okay, I got another one here. Well, maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe he just looked like he died and passed out. And then, you know, as he was in the grave, it's nice and cool. You know how the heat saps your strength. And he had all these spices on him. It's like a big energy drink. He's just like kind of marinating in this energy drink. And three days later, boom, he comes and says, I'm alive. Well, that's a pretty impressive theory, too, that Jesus survives a flogging, crown of thorns, crucifixion, being pierced with the spear, dehydration, three days underground, and yet he has the strength to wrestle himself out of his grave clothes, move a boulder too big for a single man to move. That was guarded by two Roman guards at the same time, overcome the guards, and make his way in his very ripped-apart status kind of shuffling over the disciples to say, I am the Lord of life. Okay, it's not very believable here. Okay, they went to the wrong tomb. That one doesn't work either. Think of three and number four. Mass hallucination. This is actually a theory. 
Well, what about the empty tomb? And what about convincing Paul and James? It doesn't work. Well, maybe it was a legend that started slow and developed over time. This one doesn't work either. And uh, I'll say this. This is my gift to you today. I cut 500 words from this sermon because I want to talk about this point in depth. Um, Basically, the short answer is 1 Corinthians 15 is a key passage. We read it earlier. This is the one where he says, that which I received, I pass on to you of first importance. It's remarkably strong proof showing that belief in the resurrection was early and consistent from the very beginning. Gary Habermas does a great job going into depth on this one. Um, Besides, why would Paul or James be convinced of a myth over time? None of these theories work, and what we're left with is the very reasonable claim of the early Christians and us today. Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. The resurrection is clearly taught. It validates our faith, and it's supported by strong evidence. So uh, I'm going to end here just with two applications. First one is for you, whether you are a Christian or not. Uh, If you've never considered the evidence for the resurrection before, I want you to chase down some of the recommended resources I've put there for you and do some due diligence here. Uh, Again, if you don't like to read, they're great books, but you can always just uh, Google Gary Habermas, who's the one I'd recommend, Evidence for the Resurrection. You will find a plethora of speaking engagements that he's done, more detailed arguments. Um, And uh, if you're a Christian... I'm telling you, your faith is going to be strengthened. And you're going to say, why didn't anyone tell me for 20, 30 years? Okay, and I say, well, I, t- I did tell you eventually, okay? You might have been waiting 30 years, but you finally, got, you finally heard, right? But if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to look at it too so you can face this question of who is this historical Jesus guy anyway? Guaranteed, historical Jesus was crucified, empty tomb, these people willing to die for their faith. What are you going to do with that? Uh, deal with the evidence for the resurrection, chase it down, look at the secondary sources so that maybe you just want to look at it so you can reject Christianity altogether and say, yep, it's all fake. Or does the evidence point the other direction to Jesus rising from the dead? Your life, your eternal destiny is too important to get this question of who Jesus is wrong. Second, uh, if you are a follower of Christ and you already know or you've already looked at the evidence, Uh, Give thanks to God for the assurance, the security he gives you about your faith and about all of Jesus' promises to us. And I think this is a really encouraging takeaway just for me personally too. Because of the resurrection, because God's provided evidence for it, we can know our sins are truly forgiven. We don't have to be in doubt about that, about the dead guy who said a lot of things, but that was it. We know that God lives in us by his Holy Spirit and we can have this living hope of a bright future of our uh, destiny with him, regardless of what we're going through now, because everyone's going through something, right? Physical, financial, relationship. But there's something bigger out there that we can hope in, and then we have evidence for that. These are things to get excited about. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, you are amazing. I think, I can't even remember which gospel or gospels it in where Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. And that's the sign of the resurrection, three days in the, the belly of the earth uh, to come alive again. Uh, Lord, you've, you've laid out the trail of breadcrumbs for all of those who will follow and will we'll look at the evidence. So thank you. We praise you that you give us enough evidence to chase down and find out for sure. And you give people enough 
deniability, they can walk away if they choose to. You don't force us. Uh, but Lord, I pray for those who don't know you yet, that you'd help them to chase us down and dig deep and come to grips with your resurrection. I pray for those, uh, all of us are going through something, Lord. I pray that we'd be encouraged uh, that you validate our faith by what you've done, being raised from the dead. We give you glory. We praise you. In Jesus' name.